1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
0: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's wide open. Atlanta's mayoral race now has four candidates. And as more are expected to join, political strategist Fred Hicks says candidates will need to raise a lot of money.
3: You know, there's money out there, but if I'm a major donor, I'm not quite sure right now when we look at the mayor's race, if I would give a whole lot of money unless I already have a relationship with a particular candidate.
2: That conversation in just a few moments. But first, this gas prices are high and stations are still experiencing shortages as Colonial Pipeline restarts operations following that cyber attack. But analysts say Georgians could see some relief soon. Now, the state average for a gallon of gas is now two dollars and ninety six cents. That's 21 cents more than a week ago, according to AAA. And finally,
0: what a finish to the season. And the rebound belongs to Nathan Knight. The horn will sound, and the Atlanta Hawks have defeated the Houston Rockets.
2: The Atlanta Hawks are headed to the playoffs. The team ends a regular season with a four-game winning streak, including last night's win over the Houston Rockets. The Hawks will play the New York Knicks in the first round of the NBA playoffs. The team finished fifth in the Eastern Conference. The Knicks finished fourth and will get home court advantage for this series. The matchup features a very high-scoring Hawks team versus one of the league's best defenses in the New York Knicks. The time and date for the game has not yet been set. This is Closer Look. And closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta's Choice Friend PR. I'm Rose Scott. Recently, two current Atlanta City Council members officially entered the mayor's race Antonio Brown announced on Friday and Andre Dickens the day before. That brings the total number of candidates so far to four. Sharon Gay, an attorney and former deputy chief of staff to former Mayor Bill Campbell, and current city council president. Felicia Moore. And there's speculation, more candidates will enter the race now that Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms will not seek a second term. Joining me now is Atlanta-based political strategist and frequent Closer Look Politics contributor, Fred Hicks. Fred, welcome. And we should note, Fred, you're not working with or advising any candidates or potential candidates, because if you do, then you can no longer be on the show. We can talk about puppies, <laughs> barbecue, hip-hop, but not the mayor race. Exactly. Uh, hicks fred welcome thank
3: you rose glad to be back
2: fred let's begin with council members antonio brown and andre dickens joining the field now starting with the brown now not a surprise because i asked him a few weeks ago about running and he admitted he had been considering for some time brown currently represents district three your thoughts on antonio brown now officially in the race
3: well, you know, Antonio Brown brings a new energy to the race. And what I mean by that is that he is not what you would consider an establishment kind of candidate. Um, he has he is in office, but he's only been in office for about two years. And he rose to prominence, really running um, a different kind of campaign, one that focused on empowering people uh, using digital and things like that. So the energy that he's going to bring the, to the race will be will be very interesting. That's on the positive side. But, you know, on the negative side, he does still have the indictments hanging over him. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see how he navigates that space and and questions about about that as he uh, launches a a campaign for mayor.
2: And I did ask him about the indictments and and he seemed to believe that everything's going to work out in his favor. You as someone who also conducts polls, voters pay attention to stuff like that, I would imagine.
3: Yeah, they absolutely do and to the extent that you're looking for some sort of competitive advantage in a field having an indictment hanging over your head is certainly uh not advantageous and is one that his uh, his opponents could exploit uh i think fairly easily because given the, the climate at city hall over the last couple of years the arrests and things of that nature i think that's a very valid concern obviously crime is at the top of the list affordable housing but also when you look at characteristics personal characteristics uh people want to feel good about their leaders and so uh, and their backgrounds and who they are as people. And so with an indictment hanging over your head, particularly over the financial issues, I think that is a very big threat to his campaign.
2: And in his official statement, Councilman Dickens said, quote, is facing many unique challenges, but I was made for this moment, close quote. He also cited the spike in crime. What do you make of, of Councilman Dickens in here now?
3: I think he uh, we, we look at it in the same way as we just analyzed Antonio Brown. The advantages that he has is he's a native Atlantan, went to Mays High School, went to Georgia Tech. Uh, so he has deep roots here. And he's also uh, represented the city, citywide, for the last eight years in what we call post three. And he defeated an incumbent, Lamar Willis, who was supported by Mary Reed at the time. So he has a few checks in, in that column. Uh, by the same token, on the other side of the coin, the ledger, He didn't really have an opponent, if one at all, in 2017. The world has really changed a lot in the last eight years since he ran. You have a number of new voters in Atlanta. You have a number of voters who have never voted for him. You have a number of voters on the east side, even though he's an at-large person, meaning he represents the entire city. He's more of a west side kind of candidate than he is a full city candidate. And so he has to introduce himself to the east side. And, and listen, anyone who gets in a race right now who doesn't already have an infrastructure, they're going to have to raise $2, $250,000 to $300,000 a month to do what it takes to compete in the Atlanta media market uh, to get your name out there and to be competitive and try to get into a runoff.
2: With so many council members as of now entering the race, uh, they'll need to reassure their constituents that city business doesn't falter. Meanwhile, they're all attending fundraisers and they will be campaigning. Are folks paying attention to who they want to get behind right now it's so early.
3: So there's been a lot of money donated to candidates already. Um, a number of candidates approached or crested $100,000 on this last disclosure report, and I expected it to be more like fifty dollars to $60,000. So I was surprised how much money has been donated to candidates. But that's probably because there's a lot of turnover that's going to take place this year. You're talking about six new council members and then a new mayor. So the actual business of the city has the potential to really change and shift with this election. So, you know, there's money out there, but if I'm a major donor, I'm not quite sure right now when it looks, when we look at the mayor's race, uh, if I would give a whole lot of money, unless I already have a relationship uh, with a particular
2: candidate. Typically or traditionally based on with all the work you've been involved in, when do the major donors start showing their support?
3: Uh, Somewhere between the June 30th and the September 30th disclosure reports. Uh, So if you're a candidate or a campaign, you want it in this period that we're in right now because this June 30th reporting period is the last period before we get to October. So you will do your mail before this next disclosure period, You'll launch your TV, you'll launch your radio, you'll launch your digital, and you're going to try to make a play for endorsements. So this June 30th disclosure is the last time that you'll really be able to make an impression on people who you need or want to get off the fence to support you. So this is the time, if you're a candidate, you're a that you are pressing the flesh, you're making phone calls six, eight hours a day right now to have a strong June 30th disclosure reporting period.
2: Fred, how much money does it take to have a successful Campaign to become mayor of Atlanta?
3: Oh, you have to, you have to raise over a million, um, maybe even a million and a half. Then we talked about it last month on, you know, in, in twenty seventeen. Caesar Mitchell had 2.7, Peter Raymond at 2.5, Mary Norwood was right around two million. And we're talking about in the first round, and if there's a runoff, that's a whole other million dollars to get through that four-week period there. So it's a very expensive venture. And that was to get 90-something thousand people. Now, with an open mayor's race, you're probably talking about 110,000 or so people voting in this election. So it's going to be even more expensive than last time.
2: Well, Fred, that's a great segue to my next question, because if we're talking about the voters, then look, let's be clear. And you've even said this. Atlanta's electorate is different than it was four years ago. What's the breakdown that we have thus far demographic wise? (laughs)
3: So you're looking at, I mean, if everything were to go as, as normal, right, what I mean by that is, you know, there's not something that really drives one region over another. You're talking about 110, 115,000 voters. For the first time, a majority of them would be white, 50.5, 50. 51 percent or so would be white, um, mid to upper 40s, self-identified as black, and that in between being something something else um, either.
2: So where does that data? come
3: from? Well, it's based on voting turnout. So um, when you're building a model, you look at people who voted in an election like this, and then you also look at people who have who have voted since then. So since the 2017 election, we had the governor's race and we had the presidential race and we had the U.S. Senate runoff. So mm-hmm. you've had three major elections since the 2017 municipal election in the city of Atlanta. And so with those elections, you have a whole lot of new voters who, are, who have registered who have actually voted and voted regularly, whether we're talking about the primaries, generals, runoffs, things of that nature. So you have an entirely new group of people who haven't voted for really any of these council members who are running this time, including Antonio, who won in the special election.
2: When might we see that first poll?
3: Um, I think you'll probably see that first poll in a week or two. I I think most pollsters are waiting right now to see if Mayor Reed is going to get in there because his presence would fundamentally impact the race. And so... Polling right now without him in there is not going to give you a good, solid reading. So if he makes an announcement sometime soon, I would expect a poll right after that.
2: And Fred, besides a spike in crime since last summer into this year, what are the issues might we see candidates focus on to get support?
3: Yeah, you know, everyone's going to say pretty much the same thing I imagine on crime. Elect me, I'm going to get it done and make you feel safe. So we push that to the side. That secondary issue, I believe, was affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Listen, in 2017, that was the top issue on every questionnaire, every forum. People asked about that. You asked about that when you moderated the forum. Mm-hmm. And the they student- all
2: get the same answer. <laughs>
3: Right, and, and and not a lot of, Not a lot has been done. And as a matter of fact, you know, we're now seeing $500,000 townhomes planned for, for you know, for Hollowell slash Bankhead. So I think the affordability issue is going to be a really major uh, push this year. Uh, so aside from the crime, then I think the other thing you'll look at is uh, how does the city recover from COVID? Um, mm-hmm. And what kind of partnerships will you see between the city and APS? Because even though the city does not dictate what happens with the schools, Given that people pay for both and given how COVID impacted both, I think there's a growing expectation from voters that there's some type of collaboration between the city and the, and the city school system.
2: The voice you hear is Atlanta-based political strategist and frequent Closer Look Politics contributor Fred Hicks. And our conversation is about the growing number of candidates in this year's Atlanta mayoral race. So we've talked about who's in. Let's talk about who's not. Uh, you mentioned former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed. Of course, he is reportedly thinking about running. Another former elected city councilman, Kwanzaa Hall, via social media, says he's in deep thought about it after being encouraged to run by others. Fred, is this a, Fred? will this be a repeat of 2017 where we have 14 candidates running to be Atlanta's next mayor?
3: Well, if Mayor Reed does not run, or if he takes too long to make his decision, then you will see the probably the widest field um, ever in the deepest field, and it'll be the most competitive election that we've had in recent time, well, in, in, in our lifetimes. And I say that because even though 17 um, was an open election year, you mm-hmm. had Mayor Reed who was able to really impact that election and his support for Mayor Bottoms. Mayor Bottoms probably will not have that kind of pull with the electorate this year, so it'll be wide open if he does not run. Um, if he does run, I think that someone like Aquanza Hall uh, would probably not get in the race because again, the money is going to be too hard to pull down. You have to have a dedicated donor base, and Mayor Reed, I uh, would assume, will have a million or two million allocated or set aside that he can raise really quickly. So that really it comes down to that. But if he does not run, I think that someone like a a councilman slash former Congressman Kwanzaa Hall would probably really look at doing it, as well as uh, some other people who have not yet declared. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about former state senator Jason Carter. He's right now. He's not
2: running. I can tell you right now, he's not running. Not running? Okay. You're right right here, folks. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I think the other question is if Mayor Reed gets in, and there, who drops out? Right? Does Sharon Gay, Attorney Sharon Gay, does she stay in the race? I don't see a path for her. And uh, no, she's great; she's a fantastic person. But where does she where does she draw her votes? I mean, a lot of Buckhead was supporting Felicia Moore, and then that's the other question. Now that Mayor Bottoms is not running, Felicia Moore was the face of the faithful opposition. And so now that that force to which she's opposing is, has been removed, what does that do to her campaign? Um, mm-hmm. How do they recalibrate? Because now that now she does not have her major talking point. Uh, now again, if Mayor Reed gets in there, I suppose that 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 re, is rekindled for her. But she, her campaign has to be really concerned right now, and I know she would say they're not, but. Uh, as a strategist, where do you go from here when you when now that Mayor Bottoms has announced that
2: she's not running? If you are going to run, when is that deadline for you to go ahead and make your announcement?
3: Within the next two weeks, you've got to do this in May, unless you have the ability to to self-fund. Because again, the money is so, uh, the money that's required is really, it's a big number. In 2017, you had people declare in 2016, uh-huh. That they were running, uh, um, as you and your listeners know, I was with Peter Hammond in 2017, and that was a race that he started. He ran for almost two years, and I think most people did. I think Mayor Bottoms was one of the last ones to. She and Mary Norwood were the two last ones to to actually officially declare, but they had the luxury because in Mary's case, she'd run before and she she represented the city so, citywide, and she was Mary Norwood. And in the case of Mayor Bottoms, she was likely to have and did get. Mayor Reed's support, so she had a little bit more of time on her hands, but anyone else, you have to get out there now by the end of May um, and and, may, and start making your move. So again, you have a disclosure period coming up at the end of June, um, so you, and, and people are going to base the whether or not they believe you have a chance at winning on that
2: disclosure. Meanwhile, the next year, <laughs> big statewide races, a big races period. Something's going on next year uh this is the gubernatorial race and some other statewide races and um (laughs) obviously uh the senate race is going to be up in there
3: yes yes so (laughs) senator warnock's seat is up next year all the major, all the statewide offices are up and all the legislative seats with new districts will Mm -hmm. be up because remember we have redistricting this year
2: absolutely it's gonna be very interesting you will be a busy man Uh, real quickly just want to get your thoughts on How do you see uh, the Democrats and Republicans getting ready for 2022? Let's start with the Republicans here in in the state.
3: So right now they're trying to decide who's going to run for what. I think the the governor scored a major victory this weekend with the state delegation meetings uh, where he avoided censure. Now, the secretary of state did not not, uh, enjoy the same luxury. And Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's not running, was also... um, also was, was blasted this weekend. But it looks like Governor Kemp is going to be pretty okay. I know there's Vernon Jones out there, but I think that it looks like he's going to, that, that Governor Kemp is going to solidify support. But beyond that, everything else is wide open, um, especially the Secretary of State's position. Well, I take that back. The Governor and, and AG, Chris Carr has announced that he's going to run for re-election. I think those two are pretty safe in the primary, but the other seats are up there. And then uh, of course, with the Senate seat, People are waiting to see what Herschel Walker is going to do. Is he going to get out there with, with Trump's support? Um, and if he does, what does that mean for the field? If he does not, what does that mean for the field? So Republicans have some sorting to do, but it looks like Brian Kemp and Chris Carr are going to be okay uh, in the primary for next year. Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, I mean, Jody Heiss uh, just announced the other day um, that he's running. And then uh, uh, you have David Bellal the former mayor of Alpharetta some other people. So it's, it's, it's going to be interesting in the other seats.
2: Now, the Democratic side, what are we looking at?
3: So the Democratic side could be fairly boring in some respects, because uh, Senator, Warnock, Senator Warnock is not going to be opposed to any major. He's not going to have any major opposition. Uh, if Stacey Abrams decides to run for governor, uh, which I think most most people think she will, then she will not have any significant opposition. So that means that you're looking at the attorney general's race. Uh, that already has Jen Jordan and uh, Senator Jen Jordan, rather, and Charlie Bailey. So that, that's going to be an interesting one. Lieutenant Governor uh, can also end up being very interesting. And then we've seen a number of people qualify indicate that they're going to run for labor commissioner, and that uh, Senator Lester Jackson, Representative uh, William Bode, and his uh, person Nicole Horn, uh, who lives in Midtown, who's who've all announced. And then um, I think the other seat that's gonna be really competitive is Secretary of State. So mm-hmm. with that one, you have Representative B. Wynn who's already announced. Um, I'm hearing uh, that there are a few other people who are thinking about running as well. So, you know, in the next couple of months, I think we'll we'll start seeing those other races. Um, we'll start seeing more people get out there for those other races. But with this Atlanta mayor's race, again, unless you have a dedicated pool of money, um, or you have a national base if you're a democrat you're hard-pressed to, to raise money for 2022 right now because all that money is going to go to the Atlanta mayor's race and Atlanta is where you draw your money so again unless you have a dedicated base of people who are just who who love you and are going to write checks for you to you or if you have a unless you have a national um base of donors you're going to struggle until December to raise so this the Atlanta mayor's race has really negatively impacted the fundraising abilities of people who are running in 2022. So that's just going to leave for mm-hmm. months. And if you are in the legislature, so like if you're Bodie or you're Jackson or you're B. Wynn, um, you're, you're going to go after the mayor's race is done, you're going to roll right into session. And so, you know, this, if, if I were on any of those teams, and for listeners, I'm not on any, any of those teams right now, um, you've got to figure out how to navigate this space and how to probably really honestly, how to go out of state to raise money because it's going to be really difficult to raise money in Atlanta.
2: Uh, We shall see. It's going to be an interesting year. Summer. Two years. Well, yeah, two years. You're right. Atlanta-based political strategist and frequent Closer Look politics contributor, Fred Hicks. Fred, as always, appreciate the insight. Uh, You have a bit of news for our listeners too. You're going to be a... I'm
3: going to be a, I guess, a dog grandfather and this goes back to back in november for your listeners who uh mistakenly had the impression that i do not like dogs
2: no it was no mistake you said <laughs> i don't like dogs no mistake put that on my list i
3: said that, that roll the tape no don't roll the tape i'm joking but, you alluded
2: uh, to the fact that you were not a dog guy
3: right 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 i wasn't a dog guy but uh my son is always one at one and he's been home for the last year due to covid and so we finally took the plunge, and uh, we now have a Cavapoo. A Cavapoo. Uh, a Cavapoo, which is a uh, part King Charles Spaniel and Poodle. Name is Eero and he's uh, four months old. And he is he is a good boy. Can't wait to see him today.
2: You are in love.
3: Uh, you know we, we're we're fond of each other. We're fond of each other. we will put it that you, way. So. Do
2: you miss Do you miss being around him when he's not there? I do. Like you're in love. Run. You're in love with the puppy, right Fred. Now, But
3: I didn't want to mess up the interview because I want to knock on my lap and all of that. I mean, you know, it's, the film is mutual. So if you see me in a doggy park or walking around Piedmont with a, you know, a Cavapoo, then just you know, stop me and say hello to Ira.
2: You have been converted. I never thought I'd see this day, but it has happened. Fred Hicks.
3: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's your your impact. You know, you um, you and Freddie, y'all have uh, pressured me into it. It was a good thing.
2: Sounds like you're definitely in love with your new puppy and we're all happy for you, Fred. Absolutely.
3: I'm thinking about giving him his own Instagram account. I don't know. We'll see.
2: Okay, that's it. Thank you so much, Fred, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. We'll have you back. We'll see what happens. Perhaps more announcements this coming week. Who knows?
3: I'm sure, there will be. All right, I look forward to it, Rose. Thank you. Take care.
2: Take care for you.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
2: Coming up on tomorrow's Closer Look, Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta are participating in a clinical trial testing the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine in children ages six months to less than 12 years of age. I'll speak with Dr. Evan Anderson, an attending physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and a professor as well as the study site principal investigator for the trial. We've just started to enroll at our site um, here at Emory and uh, Children's Health Care of Atlanta. We have had tremendous enthusiasm from the community. We've had over uh, 1,200 families reach out to us about potentially uh, being involved with the study and so we really are focused on trying to ensure a diverse population of kids are able to enroll into the study. That conversation on tomorrow's Closer Look. Coming up next, Paul Judge from entrepreneur to venture capitalist. The Morehouse and Georgia Tech alum talks about his recent commencement address to fellow tech graduates and his own journey. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From entrepreneur to venture capitalist and all things tech in between, Paul Judge has experienced it all. Co-founder and partner of TechSquare Labs and co-founder and executive chairman of Pindrop. That's an Atlanta-based tech firm whose security technology is used by a lot of folks from, from financial institutions, insurers, and retailers around the globe. There have also been challenging moments for Paul Judge, who also holds a Ph.D. in network security from Georgia Tech. And when he recently spoke to Tech graduates during a commencement speech, Paul Judge managed to get all that in within 15 minutes. Joining me now to talk more about his address and his own journey is Paul Judge. Welcome to the program.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Let's begin here. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this, but how do you know when an idea is a good idea.
1: <laughs> a great question. I uh, when I first started, when I was in my, my grad school, I used to look, you're trained to look for the hardest problem. Like you're trained to look for like the most complicated, hardest problem to solve to kind of prove that you can contribute to the world and contribute to the art and the science. And you'd solve like hard problems, but you you asked a, a really relevant question. You said like how to know it's a good idea. Not so a heart the hardest thing that you could go work on isn't necessarily the best thing. So now I try to look for, is it a valuable problem to, or is it a valuable idea? Meaning are there people that are willing to spend their money on it or at least spend their time on it? Right. And that's one of the, the biggest questions you have to ask. Sometimes it's a good idea to you. It's like, it's something you want, but it's like, are there, are there millions of other people who want it too? And when you figure that out, uh, that's the beginning of, okay, this thing could be valuable. And then from there, you have to ask yourself, like, okay, if it's valuable, if it's worth enough, Rose, a lot of people are going to go chase it, mm-hmm. right? Like if there's something that's worth a billion dollars, a lot of people are going to go run after it. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, what's what's my unique advantage or why I will win? Like, what do I know that other people don't? Or like, what's my angle? Like, am I expert in this area or do I know the right person to help me for distribution? And so you have to kind of figure out, I don't want to call it your cheat code, but kind of what is your competitive advantage once you've found a problem that's that's valuable? So you put those two things together. And then I think you have what you just call like, that's a good idea. You should probably go spend some time thinking about.
2: How much do you weigh the individual answering that question as opposed to asking a whole bunch of other folks to use that as a metric and whether or not this is a good idea, especially when it comes to tech? Should I, as the, the person who's come up with the concept, should I be focusing on that or should I take those questions to everybody else, maybe my inner circle and say, hey, yeah. what do you all
1: think about this? Now you should, you should go take it to more people and you should actually uh, take it to not just your friends. So, um, you know, there's this concept of like figuring out user interviews. So you go try to find like 50 people, hundred random people and like call them or like go knock on their door and say, Hey, if I were to build this, would you use it? What do you think about it? Like, do you have this problem? Would you pay for that? How much would you pay for that? And so oftentimes it's, it's much easier to, to figure out if a, idea is worthwhile or not, before you start building it, before you start writing any line of code or really spending any money on it, that's the time to cycle through and filter through ideas. And yeah, one mistake people make is like, they have an idea and they're so passionate about it personally, that they don't want to hear anybody tell them that it's not a good idea. And they just go start building it. And you start spending your money, you start spending your time, you start spending years of your life. And you realize like, wait, this isn't the one that I should have worked on. And so as much pre-work as you can do in talking to 50 people, 100 people, uh, because there's millions of ideas, and the great thing about tech is you only need one, or right? you only need one company to work, and life gets interesting. And so you don't have to just jump at the first idea. You just really spend time, uh, like you said, talking to users and not just your friends, um, but more experts in the world and people who will potentially be your customers.
2: You told the Georgia Tech graduates to look at how they could use technology and innovation to change the world and go build something from nothing Was that your mindset years ago uh, when you were either at Morehouse or Georgia Tech?
1: You know, I at Morehouse, I realized that, oh, wait, this world of technology exists. Like, that's a career, and people are not only making a career out of it, but they're making companies out of it, and those companies can be life-changing. And that opened my eyes, like, wow, I want to do that. But when I looked at it, I said, oh, I'm not nice enough yet, right? I'm not I'm not, I'm not what we call in this world, like one of the illest I need to go kind of put more time in the gym. I was like, how do I go do that? And for me, it was like, go to grad school so I can spend years just uh, perfecting my craft and, and, and getting better at it. So that's why I went from Morehouse to, to Georgia Tech and, and studied my, my PhD. So I knew then that I, I wanted to go build something. I needed to go figure out like, what's the thing I'm going to be good enough to go build? What's the problem that I can find that that nobody else is, is working on? Uh, and so while I was in grad school, I I met a guy starting a company. I joined as a really early employee and, you know, started from really the the bottom of the the pole there in um, kind of the uh, arc chart and kind of worked my way up and we built a a really good company. And I've been chasing it ever since, like building the next company, building the next company. Now, you know, I spent a lot of my time helping other people uh, do that. It's kind of like seeing the mountaintop and seeing like, wait a second, this. Wealth creation, this value creation that happens—it's um, a totally different world. Like you don't have to start with raw materials. You just—and so for you think about you know African Americans, Black, and this culture and community—you know none of the things that like traditionally held us back. It's like we can have an idea, we could figure out, go learn how to code, and be part of this this high tech uh, world and and wealth creation that's happening. So I try to tell as, as many as, as I can, uh, and have people go spend the time to to really get involved.
2: And you've done all that here in Atlanta and you and I both know when folks are chronicling the rise of Atlanta as this black tech Mecca and you along with some others y'all are considered cornerstones in Atlanta's emergence in the tech space. You accept that?
1: Yeah, I've I've just, I've been doing it for, for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, like I got to Atlanta in 95, started majoring in computer science you know, graduated in 98, you know, by 2002, we're, we're building a, a company that's known around the, country, the world. So we sold it in 2006. So it's like 15 years ago, I we went through the first acquisition and, you know, we've been fortunate. I've been part of several companies that were acquired or we've taken public and had, you know, some of the top investors in the world come back us uh, from right here in Atlanta. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a lot of responsibility to do a couple of things, you know, one, keep doing it right. Not mm-hmm. to just kind of rest on your laurels or I think, as I mentioned, a speech like "Don't be comfortable, be great," like keep going, uh, and and then also to help as many other people uh, as possible uh, get in the industry. The one good thing I think, and for the most part, about the tech industry is uh, there's this. Uh, there's this is Kanye quote. It's like people say I'm racist because I only see green faces. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, and there's a, a gentleman, Ben Horace, one of the top investors in, in the valley in the country. And, you know, he has this quote that, uh you know, greed trumps race. Right. So meaning like people are trying to make money they're trying to build amazing companies that are going to be really valuable and deliver returns. And when you have that, like your metrics speak for themselves. So if you can actually like buckle down and like build an interesting company that's growing, uh, it's really hard to kind of insert prejudice once you have a company that's that's doing its thing. Uh, And so we try to get people to focus on on that as much as possible. Like, how do we go build a company that's growing, that has good traction, that has good revenue? Because that kind of excellence helps you really get rid of any pressures that exist. And by doing it in Atlanta, as you mentioned, I mean, we're just a naturally diverse city. So if you're doing it in Atlanta, you're going to end up with a diverse tech scene.
2: Well, let's talk about that. Cause even with all that you just said, there still remains issues regarding access, equity, let's go ahead and throw in diversity and inclusion. And particularly when we talk about creating a pipeline within the STEM fields, you know, and the technology is a part of that. How do you see Atlanta being a a viable portal for that, for increasing the pipeline of candidates,
1: especially black candidates? No, for sure. And in in so many ways, I think, when you look at other industries that are a translation from like idea or thought to something of value, I mean, technology is really similar to music and that you can dream something up and like you type it into a keyboard, right? It's a different type of keyboard, but it's a keyboard. And on the other side comes something that people you distribute to users, right? It may be music, it may be software, but there's a lot of similarities, similar thing with, with film. Like you dream something up, you record it, you distribute it. And so, you know, once diverse people, black people, and understood the film industry, such so the music industry made significant impact, right? There's not a shortage of creativity. There's not a shortage of execution and hustle. Um, And so I think right now we're kind of having moments where more and more black community understanding the technology industry, understanding the wealth that is created there uh, and figuring out, frankly, that a lot of times right now, Rose, culture is, is driving technology, right? It's driving social networks, uh, is driving what types of phones people think are cool or not cool, right? When, when we thought the flip phone was cool, that's what people purchased and we thought the Android. And so it's like we drive so much consumer behavior that there's no reason that the culture of the Black community isn't driving more of kind of the technology roadmap for, for the world. And, you know, with that happening in Atlanta, you, you have the resources, you have all these large corporations around as potential customers, you you have the talent base between you know Georgia Tech on one side and like Morehouse and Spelman and Clark and Georgia State. I mean we have the one of the most diverse kind of, uh, college ecosystems that exists in the country. Mm-hmm. And so as we continue to do this, um, I think we're just we're gonna, uh, only gonna build success here, but we're gonna change kind of really the the lens of what diversity in, in tech means. Uh, and so I mean part of that, as you mentioned, is building a larger pipeline. Part of that is uh, educating people to take the risk, right? Um, part of that is helping people get that initial funding, right? And then from there, it's, okay, now that I got started, how do I actually build a scalable business? And so there's phases of it, right? There's pipeline, then there's exposure, then there's initial funding. And then the thing that kind of really separates is, okay, can I go build a scalable business? How do I build a company that has 10 million of revenue or hundred million of revenue, right? Is there a possibility to get into a billion dollars of revenue?
2: That's a good segue into my next question, because I'm curious when startups are seeking funding and, and founders are making their pitches, what do you look for in their mission and vision?
1: Um, the founder, I, what I've, I've seen is some of the most successful companies, the, the, the founders just believe in the, their heart and soul that this problem needs to be solved. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not about the money. It's just a problem that exists in the world that they feel needs to be solved. And they feel that they're the one to solve it. And they're willing to spend a decade of their life fixing that, right? And so if someone has a very short-term view of like, hey, I'm doing this because I'm going to flip it and make a lot of money, like startups are hard. And when stuff is breaking and customers are mad at you and like your staff is quitting and you're running out of money, you know, do you have that perseverance to, to keep going or not? is often the, the difference between success and failure. And so if you don't really believe in your core that you're here to go solve this problem, then you'll probably quit when things get tough. And so that's really one of the things that separates. Look at some of the greatest founders ever. I mean, look at Elon and his mission to Mars. Or look at uh, you know Steve Jobs and how he felt about personal computing and Apple. I mean, you think about the Google guys and making in, uh, information available. It's really part of their core mission. Uh, and so I think that's that's one of the, the, the biggest tests Rose.
2: You offered a lot of life lessons in that commencement speech. Are you still learning? Every day. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Like what? Uh, like what? Um, I mean, the, i tell you a couple interesting things about technology. Is there's, there's waves that happen. And whether they happen every seven years or every 10 years, you know, when I, I first started, you know, people were, um, you know, kind of, in the enterprise starting to kind of do more uh, transactions online and like basic internet security for e-commerce was like the thing that I studied and where we built the first company. And then after that, people were getting iPhones and tablets. And so fast, you know, 2008, like, Oh, we need to build We need to go help solve that. We need to go build. And so, you know, you look at what's happening right now with blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies and um, how finance is being rewritten. I mean, one of the things I, I mentioned in, in the speech even is, coming out of COVID, I mean, the entire world, like while it feels like it's going back to like normal state, everything's changing, like under, like right before our eyes right now, like finance is changing, like healthcare is changing. And so there's every opportunity to go kind of learn a new industry, go be involved in how that industry is being rewritten. And so I spent a lot of time learning that, right. Uh, But then also, you know, I'm transitioning. I just launched a, a new venture fund called Panoramic Ventures. It's mm-hmm. a $300 million fund, and you know, I'm learning right still, kind of this transition from being, you know, entrepreneur to angel investor to you know now, uh, you know, venture capitalist. And you know, really, how do we <clears throat> work with 10, 20, 30, 40 entrepreneurs and their companies at a time, and and really help them be successful? Now, the difference is. You know, before I was doing it with one or two people. Now we have a team of about thirty people uh, to work with entrepreneurs and help these companies be successful as we invest in them. And so I'm I'm spending time every day learning that and getting better at that as well.
2: Also, in that speech, Paul, you talked about when you first arrived at Georgia Tech, you questioned whether or not you belong, whether or not you fit in, and then now years later, you're giving this commencement speech as you were. Crafting your speech, did you think about all that? Did you think back to that time when you arrived on campus?
1: You know, I I did, I remember, and I got on the phone with with some of my old friends and um, kind of reminisced a bit and and joked because I was trying to think about, you know, what to say to to someone at that point in in their life. And this is my first time doing a commencement speech and, you know, to do it, uh, you know, at Georgia Tech, to do it, you know, kind of at the stadium to thousands of people um it's like how to make it memorable and how to kind of add something to uh the, the graduates lives and uh, my friends were joking with me about kind of when I was in grad school and yeah it was I remember getting there and really looking around because I was coming from Morehouse mm-hmm. and as you know I mean Morehouse is predominantly black and um you know grew up in Baton Rouge predominantly black side of town I get to Georgia Tech and I look around and I'm like wait I'm not a minority because I'm black I'm a minority because i'm american right mm-hmm. and it, it introduced me to this global playing field you know kind of all my colleagues from in india and asia and China and, Russia and And i remember that moment of like wait am i good enough mm-hmm. um you know can i do this but then just buckling down and like saying no to having a social life and <laughs> and just kind of pushing it and getting the work done and um and so it's like, okay, what are the things that I, I've learned since then? And so, yeah, it was an amazing kind of just this full circle moment from, uh, you know, being, and then one of the, the gentlemen I was in grad school with at the time, uh, uh, Raheem Bayez, is, is Dean of Engineering at, at Georgia. I
2: just had a conversation with him.
1: Oh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. And so that was, uh, you know, special as, as we were walking out uh, into the field, uh, you know, last time we'd spent a bunch of time together was we were probably sitting in lab trying to figure out how to get through our tests, right, and how to, how to get these assignments done. And so it just, it shows you, right, that, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later, if you just heads down and, and dedicate a decade of life to being good at something, um, you know, any anyone could do it. Um, and so I think that's what I tried to share. And, uh, you know, feedback has, has been positive, you know, from uh, what surprised me a bit is not only from graduates, but a number of parents have reached out. And yeah. said, "Hey, I'm 53, but like you're making me go think about getting into tech now." And so that that was rewarding.
2: How do you sum up your journey
1: so far? How do I sum up my journey? Yeah. Um, I think there's, you know, I would the word blessing has come to mind. A bless. The, the word, uh, you know, fortunate and lucky comes to mind. Uh, but then, you know, the 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 uh, just the journey and the, you know, we I know we use the word marathon a lot as we're you know kind of think about how Nipsey reflected upon it been a marathon not a sprint but you know it's 25 years later and i think i have 25 years left to go in, in my career right just uh working wise and so i think of right now as this this transition point of okay we've started from kind of no knowledge and nothing and kind of can kind of have some level of success we've had so far like what does the next 25 years look like like what kind of impact can i have uh how many people can i open doors for what kind of great companies can we build uh, and so I feel like I'm, I'm at that moment where I'm transitioning largely from being an entrepreneur to being an investor. So if I think about kind of turning the band for the next 25 years, it's like, how do I become one of the, the best or one of the greatest? And you measure the good thing about that. You measure that and how many people you help build great companies and how many people you help bring their dreams to life. And so uh, that's the beautiful thing about it. It's um, it's a really uh, kind of rewarding side. And even like this thing that we, we launched called Startup Showdown, it's mm-hmm you know, every month, $120,000, we invest in someone's business. And, you know, it's it's a pitch competition. It's fun. People log in and watch, but if you zoom in and look underneath of what's happening, as you would call it, closer look, it's just, it's hard for minorities to go raise a friends and family round, Mm -hmm. right? You need that first 100K, first 200K, like which uncle or aunt do you go to? And so, uh, you think about the gaps that exist that I found that that friends and family around that first 100K or 200K is really hard in our community is really hard for other diverse uh, entrepreneurs that have an idea to have a dream that need to go take the chance. And we said, how can we help? How can we help fill that void? And so I've been doing that for five years. We we did it. We used to call it a startup battle. I don't know if you ever had a chance to, to come to one. We've done eight of those. And now through Panoramic, we're going to do them every month. So, think about every month you get to give some entrepreneur the chance to go chase their dream for the first time uh, by putting $100,000 behind their idea. And the companies that have come through it before have now become multi million dollar companies and raised millions of dollars of funding. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited about that, really just helping people go make their dream a reality.
2: And finally, let's talk about the first time you heard Paul Judge is the godfather of tech in Atlanta. What would you think? Because you've seen the movie, right?
1: <laughs> no, you know, I was I was thinking like I wasn't thinking that form of Godfather. So that's the first time that <laughs> you said it, that it, it gave me that reference. Um, but at the first time I saw it, I was like, what? No, I'm not that old. Right. I'm just. Not... <laughs> and, so, uh, and then, you know, there's, there's other people who have been in the industry doing it for so long in Atlanta. Right. Like Sig Mosley, who. You know, people call the godfather of, you know, angel investing in Atlanta mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And, you know, just so many others, uh, you know, John Emley, and, you know, like, and so forth that when I saw someone say that, I, I first kind of pushed back. It's like, no, 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 I I, I don't. And then uh, someone else said it. And, you know, I just, it's interesting, like, it's okay, well, I have to go grow into that. I have to go, <laughs> I have to go earn that. I have to go keep working and, and earn that. I'll, 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 you know, sometimes there's a crown that you have to grow into right and so um you know like and so that's that's how I think about it. You know, I, I don't say it my, myself, but it's um I think at the end of the day, if I could continue to have impact on, you know, the city uh and this community and just continue to kind of help others that look like me, let me came from where I came from, uh understand this world and kind of make their life better, make their family lives better. Because that's the other side of this is we're solving problems you're making great software, you're building companies, you're you know, making the world secure or more efficient or whatever you're doing. But like the, the wealth that this industry creates is like life-changing and family-changing and community-changing, right? And so we think about how we can make our schools better, how we make our churches better, how we make our families better. The more people that know how to go build their own companies uh, and, and generate wealth, I mean, it, it just it has so much residual and so much everlasting effect um that you know it keeps you it keeps you going
2: is there anything about the industry tech industry that concerns you
1: you know i think it's 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 such an interesting time right now in tech kind of coming off of of covid Mm -hmm. because it's all these technical changes we talked about right like remote work it's like do you go to the office do you not go to the office do you have a hybrid team you know now you can kind of live anywhere in the world that you want to and mm, work at a tech companies and now, the ways to onboard, to learn software is easier than ever before. Right? You can go take a 16 week class and go from, you know, hey, I, I did something different. Maybe I was in hospitality and now i go take a 16 week class and now I'm an entry level programmer. And that's encouraging, right? It's like anyone from any background, you know, I went to school for a long time um, and now we can, you know, there's enough systems where someone can in two or three months kind of enter the tech workforce. That's, that's encouraging. Um, I mean, there's still in any, any industry some problems, right? There's there's some prejudices that exist, whether it be conscious bias or uh, unconscious bias um, that that exists that kind of hurts people from getting hired, hurts um, you know entrepreneurs from from being of color from getting funding. Uh, but there's other things that I'm involved in. Like at South Bank, uh has a, a opportunity fund that's a hundred million dollar fund dedicated to entrepreneurs of color, so black and Latin American, Native American. And, you know through that initiative we've invested in over over 40 uh minority founders uh and so there's i think a lot of efforts like that that are working to address some of the issues that exist and so you know I, i'm more hot than cold on the tech industry overall um, because i think there's a lot of good people trying to do the right thing co-founder
2: and partner of tech square labs and co-founder and executive chairman Of Pin Drop from entrepreneur to venture capitalist and all things tech in between. Paul Judge, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: And my pleasure. Great to chat with you.
2: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program, just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.